Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McCray from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and this week we'll be discussing Indonesia's urban poor and their struggle to carve out a place for themselves in Indonesia's cities. With rapid urbanisation and rising inequality in Indonesia, levels of urban poverty have also increased, and people living and working in informal circumstances face ongoing threats, including eviction. Periodically, the urban poor's activism to defend and advance their interests has taken centre stage in Indonesian politics, never more so than in the 2017 Jakarta gubernatorial elections, when the issue of evictions became entwined with Islamist opposition to the incumbent governor Basuki Cahaya Panama, or Ahok, in the massive mobilisation against him which eventually saw his electoral defeat and prosecution. To discuss Indonesia's urban poor and their activism, I'm joined today by Dr Ian Wilson, Senior Lecturer in Security Studies at Murdoch University and the author of The Politics of Protection Rackets in Post-New Order Indonesia, Coercive Capital, Authority and Street Politics. Ian, thanks so much for joining us today on Talking Indonesia. Uh, hi, Dave. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me onto the program. Yep, and uh, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And can I start by asking you, how big a group is the urban poor in Indonesia and, and what typical living circumstances do they have? One of the big complexities, I suppose you could say, in discussing poverty, not just in Indonesia, but more generally, is how do we understand and define who the poor actually are. And the standard kind of definitions that are used by governments, as well as big donor agencies such as the World Bank, is based on an estimate of daily or monthly spending. And in the Indonesian case, the government has set this at around 11,000 rupiah a day, or 75 US cents approximately. Now, by those figures, there's around just under 10% of Indonesia's population who are considered or categorised as poor. That's roughly around 260 million. There aren't clear figures on the urban poor, but we can extrapolate from the fact that Indonesia's uh, urban population is currently sitting at around 54 to 55% of the total population of Indonesia. So a significant amount of that number of, of 26 million people, according to the Indonesian government estimates, would be living in urban contexts. The problem with some of these definitions, and particularly in the Indonesian case, is that these often give a misleading representation of what it means to be poor. Uh, Indonesian government has been criticised both within the country and outside of the country for setting an extremely low poverty line, which in fact is significantly lower than what's the generic definition that people often take from the World Bank that's currently sitting at around $1.90 US a day. And that this has sort of been part of the manipulating of statistical definitions of poverty that, that can make it seem that it's less than it actually is. So when we're looking at the, the statistical side to poverty in Indonesia, most NGOs working on poverty-related issues within Indonesia have argued that the figure is significantly higher than what we're seeing government estimates as being given. I mean, would you argue that there's a better way to define poverty? Is there, is Rather than statistical definitions, is there something about living circumstances or social class that would be a better way to think about it? 
I've worked on a collaborative project with Professor Jane Hutchison and Professor Caroline Hughes, where we've done a comparative study of the politics of poor people across Southeast Asia, drawing on the examples of Indonesia, the Philippines, and also Cambodia. We have sort of argued that the statistical definitions really don't provide any insights into the realities of how poverty is experienced and reproduced at a social level. So we've sort of used a social relational approach. And in that kind of approach, we examine poverty as a particular set of arrangements or relationships. So poverty in that sense can be defined one in which the poor are defined by having to rely for basic needs upon more powerful sets of actors. And this sort of doesn't undermine necessarily the statistical definitions and they have their place, but they also can be quite misleading, firstly, in terms of not encapsulating the scope of poverty. And if you return to the Indonesian government's definition, if you're earning, by their definition, slightly more than that, then immediately you fall out of the definitions of poverty. And of course, the reality is for millions of people in the country is that economic circumstances, particularly those who are making a living in informal sector, economic arrangements where their economic fortunes can fluctuate significantly from day to day, if not week to week or month to month, that these kinds of estimates really don't give an accurate picture of the scope and scale of poverty. If we understand poverty in terms of people who are unable or struggle to meet basic human needs. So, I mean, to pick up on a couple of your points there, what is the lived experience of poverty in, say, Jakarta or other major Indonesian cities? Uh, What sort of powerful actors would the poor be be relying on and and what needs are they seeking to fill? So particularly in urban contexts where land and space is hyper-financialised, one of the defining features of poverty has often been tenure insecurity often in people's minds linked to the existence of squatter settlements, informal settlements where people are forced by circumstances to live in in often extremely unsafe and unsanitary conditions because they're simply not able to afford or gain access to adequate forms of housing. And this is often intertwined with a whole range of other sets of issues around health, for example. There's very strong correlations perhaps unsurprisingly, between informal settlements and high rates of infectious diseases because they may lack in core forms of infrastructure such as sanitation, access to clean water. They're often close to dangerous spaces within cities such as riverbanks, which are subject to flooding or erosion, etc. So we can see in the urban context in particular, it often has a very significant spatial dimension about where people can live or where they can't live, what resources or infrastructures they have access to or are denied as key defining features of poverty, above and beyond, but of course intertwined with people's income and sources of livelihood. Apart from that spatial aspect, what would be the sources of livelihood that we'd expect people to be pursuing in these informal settlements in in major cities? One aspect which is often intertwined with understandings of being poor in the city is informal kinds of labour. And of course, anyone who's been to any major city in Indonesia will be familiar with street sellers selling everything from cigarettes to, to snacks to toys, any manner of goods. And of course, these are all unregulated markets. Uh, people don't have any kind of safety net. Their economic fortunes may go up and down. They may sell one thing and then move on to try and sell another thing. There's often difficulties about accessing space. And of course, a huge political issue in in Jakarta over the decades has been, in many respects, the place of the poor in the city. Should people be allowed to sell goods on sidewalks, for example, which many poor people 
do because they're not able to afford or gain access to shop fronts or the insides of retail stores. So informal selling is one kind. Informal services as well. Uh, there can be anything from cleaning to repairs, but informality is often a, a key defining feature. And again, informality returns back to the fact that people don't have guaranteed income. It fluctuates. It's precarious. They don't have any kind of job security and they don't have the kind of protections that formal employment has. In the Indonesian context, this has often been referred to as kind of a safety net feature of the Indonesian economy where people's own sort of ingenuity has acted in some respects as, as an alternative to the provisions of social welfare, where people will find ways to survive. But increasingly, Indonesia has been subject to the same kinds of economic shifts as we see globally, where even formal employment doesn't necessarily mean that people are able to afford the basics of cost of living. So we are seeing not just I guess it may be a more traditional historical understanding of the poor is caught up in informal forms of labour, but increasingly people who are working in formal jobs, that could be retail, the people who work in mini-marts, for example, in, in a place like Jakarta, or they work in uh, supermarkets, may not be getting adequate forms of income in a context of uh, a city like Jakarta where the cost of living are, are going up all the time, and this isn't pegged to increases in salary. So we can have working poor, in that sense, but we also have many of the poor who are etching out a living through a whole range of very creative and ingenious forms of informal labour that can shift and change over time. When people find themselves living in these insecure circumstances, whether in informal labour or, or formal labour that's simply not covering the cost of living, I mean, is there any prospect of moving out of those circumstances in Jakarta and other large Indonesian cities, or, or is poverty something that becomes then entrenched and, I guess, intergenerational? The question you can ask is, where do you go? And if you look at the patterns of urbanisation in Indonesia, which are, are quite striking. So by way of example, in the mid-90s, around 65% of Indonesia's population lived in rural contexts. So many were involved in various forms of agricultural labour. By 2010, that had already gone down to 50%. So what we had seen over the, the past 15 to 20 years in Indonesia, and this is a demographic and economic pattern we see globally, but in particularly in Indonesian context has been highly accelerated, is that cities have boomed and expanded largely because people have come there seeking economic opportunity. So the kind of double bind of urban poverty is that many people who come to a place, a city like Jakarta, are coming because they're not able to find adequate labour in rural, semi-rural contexts. And the attraction of the big city is it's always a place of opportunity. It's a place where things could happen that could never happen in your village or in a, a semi-regional context. So you have patterns where large numbers of people are continuing to come to Jakarta essentially to escape poverty or to find an opportunity for a kind of social economic mobility that they feel is simply not available to them in a rural context. So for those who've come to Jakarta uh, and end up living in poverty, as well as those who have sort of been embedded in poverty often across generations, and that is, that is definitely a, a key feature is that we do see intergenerational poverty. People don't have a sense or have opportunities by which to, to lift themselves out uh, of poverty that these become kind of cyclic patterns. You know, people aren't going to be moving out of the urban context unless there's genuine opportunities for 
for making a decent living in rural contexts. And that's simply not the case at this point in time in Indonesia. And I mean, when you look at governments of cities, say the Jakarta government or, or other major cities around Indonesia, do they see the urban poor as a set of people that are their responsibility that they should be seeking to extend services to? Or, or what is their attitude? I mean, if, if we look at the, the case of Jakarta, a kind of a, a historical constant, I guess you could say, in a lot of the policy or rhetoric of Jakarta's governors has been that the problems of urbanisation are less a matter of adequate forms of infrastructure to deal with you know, a social and economic reality for the country. Uh, and it's often more being framed as problems of the poor themselves. So from the times of Ali Sadikin as a governor of Jakarta in the 1970s through the end of the new order and Suti Oso, who was the kind of transitional governor from the end of the new order into the post-new order era. And then Jakarta's post-new order governors, such as Fauzi Bowo, uh, Jokowi, and also Ahok, there's been this constant kind of idea that the problem is from uncontrolled migration. So you'll see, for example, there's been a regular policy that post-Ramadan, after the holy month of fasting, when people often return to their place of origin, Jakarta, firstly, is a much easier place to get around because so many people in Jakarta come from somewhere else, they return home. But there's often been a policy to try and prevent people returning from bringing family members with them. And this has often been linked to rapid increases in population where people go back to their village, the rural context that they've come to Jakarta from, and when they return, they bring people with them. So this kind of idea that's sort of gone through a lot of policy across administrations in Jakarta, and I, I think you can find equivalents in other parts of the country, uh, has been that the problems are due to issues of uncontrolled migration, rather than, say, pitching it as a problem that there's inadequate provisions of suitable forms of infrastructure that expanding metropolises need to have if they're going to house and provide the basics of life for increasing populations. You've mentioned governors stretching back to the authoritarian era there in Ali Siddiquin, as well as a range of democratic era governments, both military and, and civilian officials. You know, uh, across many spheres of Indonesian life, we see democratisation as a, as a key moment that opened up myriad possibilities for activism. Has democratisation had much of an, an impact on the circumstances of the urban poor in Jakarta and, and the opportunities they have to advance their own interests? Most definitely, with certain constraints. But if we look at some of the kind of key shifts from the sort of new order to the post-new order era in a, in a city like Jakarta, you know, Ali Sadikin through to Suti Oso, the approach to looking at poor neighbourhoods in the city were, was often not framed as an issue of social welfare, for example, but more as political risk, that these constituted places where political upheaval, where dissent, where criminality, where ideological extremism could emerge from. And so poor neighbourhoods were often subjected to in particular forms of, I guess, securitised governance. And even if we look at things that many who live in Indonesia would be familiar with, such as the POSIS Kumling, which is a kind of neighbourhood watch system that was introduced in the 1980s, this was on the back of the idea that poor kampung neighbourhoods could become sources of political unrest. And so they were subjected to particular kinds of policing. Also, and this is stuff I've done in, in, in other work, uh, looking at kind of gangsterism in Indonesia, much of the governance of informal space, so that street sides, et cetera, where many of the poor may make a livelihood, 
was often subcontracted out to gangsters, civil militias who had various relationships to the state as forms of social control. Now, after 1998, many of those power relationships were certainly temporarily, at least quite radically, altered. And you saw in the early 2000s much more proactive forms of advocacy by urban poor communities themselves, sometimes in alliance with, say, middle-class NGOs, but also new networks emerged that sought to advocate on behalf of the rights of the urban poor as citizens, as citizens of a city like Jakarta with equal rights, constitutionally at least, to any other citizen, for their rights to be able to access space and to access infrastructure. So democracy has, in, in that respect, I would suggest, offered lots of opportunities for small-scale advocacy by urban poor communities. What we haven't seen in the Indonesian case, which we, have, we can see in other parts of the world, so if we compare to the Philippines, where the urban poor have formed quite large and political organised social movements that have become electorally quite powerful, that have been able to advocate for particular significant policy concessions, particularly in relation to land tenure. In the case of Indonesia and, say, a, a city like Jakarta, urban poor activism remained much more fragmented. So we haven't had the kind of coalescing of larger numbers of people that could really provide uh, a significant political movement that could push for structural reforms. Rather, what we've tended to see is that urban poor networks and groups, and so in a case like of Jakarta, you have like the Urban Poor Consortium, which is a consortium arrangement of different communities that organise around issues, advocacy issues linked to the urban poor, particularly land tenure issues. They've sort of been forced to engage in, in a, another kind of politics, which is to try and gain concessions from particular political figures rather than constituting a significant political force in and of their own right. So in many respects, while democracy has offered opportunities for the poor both as citizens who vote in elections, and it's almost a given now that a politician is going to have to pitch something that's going to appeal to working class and poor voters. At the same time, the urban poor in Indonesia haven't coalesced into either a political party or a significant political force in the same way that we've seen in other parts of the world. If I, again, if I compare it to Southeast Asia, the Philippines. So democracy has its pros and its cons in that respect, but I don't think in a deeper structural sense, it's really, at this point in time, led to uh, a significant shift in the structural relations of power that are really embedded in what it means to be poor in Indonesia. And in many respects, it's still clientelistic and patronage-based relationships. And of course, if you're poor, an ideological commitment is, a, is often a luxury that you can't afford. People are deeply instrumental, they're deeply pragmatic, and if they can gain temporary concessions by linking themselves to a patron, a powerful local or national figure, that's the kind of pragmatic politics that we see actually a lot more of in the Indonesian case. And, and in, certainly in the project that I've worked on with my colleagues in Southeast Asia, we've argued this is a defining feature of poor people's politics, that because of their weak position in terms of relations of power, they're often forced into what from an ideological perspective might seem is quite contradictory sets of relationships, but their concern is to survive and to preserve what they've already managed to secure for themselves. And this sort of pattern has still remained a constant, I'd argue, in the last sort of 20 years of, of post-New Order democracy. We'll get into that question of clientelism and patrons in just a second, but I, I mean, to return to your contrast with the Philippines where you do have an organised social movement, why haven't we seen that 
emerge in Indonesia? Is it just the success of the authoritarian government in obliterating the left and keeping opposition disorganized? Is it that the poor don't share a, a collective identity in the way that we would lump them into, into a de- statistical definition? Uh, what, what sort of obstacles have there been? I think, as you've touched upon there, there's definitely historical legacies and the kind of destruction of, of organised leftist politics in the 1960s and its subsequent criminalisation throughout the new order and into the present has sort of eliminated in some respects or, or made very, very risky the kind of class-framed politics that you would see in the Philippines, for example, where leftist politics is much stronger than it is in that context. And that's definitely to the detriment of the poor who would, because of their material circumstances, be kind of naturally drawn to those kind of organisational structures. It's also, I think, a product of the kind of fragmented nature of economic and, in some respects, social life that are constitutive of of poverty. So the Urban Poor Consortium, for example, who who I mentioned before, did some fascinating research in conjunction with a number of scholars where they got people from urban poor communities to do survey research in other urban poor communities in other parts of the city. What this was driven by was their observation that many people didn't have a collective sense of identity that people in other parts, even in people in neighbouring neighbourhoods, shared or experienced the same kinds of structural problems that they did, that people were often so focused on the day-to-days of trying to survive and make do with limited resources that there wasn't necessarily a shared sense of a perspective that we are all facing the same kinds of structural constraints, we're all subject to the same kinds of macroeconomic forces, Etc. And that this kind of consciousness, which in many respects is necessary if you're going to form any kind of social movement or political movement, there has to be a, a set of a shared set of material circumstances. Certainly, I know activists have written a, a, and spoken that this has been extremely difficult to do in the Indonesian context. Do we see any trend in that regard? I mean, is there a growing collective identity or has or that activism been, as you said, deeply difficult? Uh, if, if we link it to some specific political moments over the past few years, and when, say, when Jokowi came to Jakarta on the back of his time as mayor of, of Solo, you know, he very much excited many urban poor groups, but also communities with the idea that he was a new kind of politician who was very interactive, he was very open to discussing with the urban poor, marginalised social and economic communities. And there was a, a very strong hope developed that if they collaborated and supported Jokowi, they could sort of usher in significant changes. And so you saw in Jokowi's first foray into Jakarta politics in 2012, where he contested the governorial elections against the incumbent Fauzi Bowal, the emergence of political contracts. And we saw the Urban Poor Consortium and a broader alliance of urban poor groups that included sectoral groups, so Betchuck Drivers, Fisher People's Organisations, forming into a broad political contract with Jokowi, what was interesting was that it was about very broad sets of arguably structural changes that they were hoping for. So, for example, there was a part of the contract that Jokowi signed and said he would do his best to deliver this when he was uh, elected into power, was a radical overhaul of land tenure rights, for example, which, if enacted, would have seen those who could prove occupation of land for 10 years or more, gaining a nominal form of tenure. Something like that was a, would have been a radical overhaul 
of the kind of politics that defines land ownership in a city like Jakarta. Now, when Jokowi was elected, and if you look at the kind of mappings of where he had significant wins in the city, many of these poorer neighbourhoods were some of his strongest supporters, and you saw a huge increase in people's engagement in democracy itself. Voting isn't obligatory in Indonesia, unlike in Australia. Uh, So participation rates at different times have been actually quite low. Uh, But this kind of politics saw many of the urban poor who may not have been inclined to engage in electoral politics because of the idea that it's a waste of time, it doesn't actually deliver tangible changes, a cynical apprehension of the process based in experience that people say one thing and, and then do another. But this saw a huge upset. As things unfolded, Unfortunately, uh, Jokowi didn't deliver on many of these promises. And this was a very bitter kind of lesson for many of the urban poor groups and led to kind of, I guess you could say, a recalibration of strategies away from broader kinds of demands to much more focused and specific demands. So the idea being that we're unable to hold politicians to account to these broader things that we're hoping for, but in political contracts formed at a neighbourhood level, for example, The trend has been for political contracts that are much more specific and the logic being that this is much more likely that that politicians will deliver on these things. But the idea that a broader push for changes that would shake up the relations of power that that really keep people in poverty in many respects, there's sort of been an abandonment of that at this point in time as a strategy by urban poor groups. And the idea that you have to be specific, you focus on tangible, short or small-scale demands or redistributions of some kind. And this is something that can actually be achieved through the current format of electoral politics in Indonesia. But the the broader demands are ones it's too easy for politicians to dismiss. And because the urban poor don't have a political party, they don't have a kind of organisational vehicle to push for this, it's very difficult to keep politicians to account. Of course, this is a a global problem with politics more generally, but certainly by the poor because of their weakened position, this has been a definite feature. I mean, you mentioned that a defining feature of urban poor activism is ideological pragmatism. You know, certainly we've heard about whether alliances is the the best term or whatever between the urban poor and groups like the Islamic Defenders Front, the FPE, or an ethically defined association, you know, like the Forum Batawi Rembug, the FBR, for instance. What is the relationship between the urban poor and these groups and what is each side offering the other? Well, I mean, that's a much more complex question than it may first appear. And and I I certainly know, uh, sort of having observed groups like the FPE and and the Forum Batari Rumpu over some time, that certainly in in a a city like Jakarta for middle-class Jakartans, these groups are just nothing but a menace. They're a menace to public order. They're seen as reactionary, difficult groups that many people would like to go away how many urban poor neighbourhoods experience and perceive these organisations, however, is often quite radically different. The reasons for that is that many of the members of these organisations come from these neighbourhoods. And on a day-to-day level, in many instances, when people have problems, perennial flooding that comes to Jakarta every season without fail and always adversely affects urban poor neighbourhoods more than others, it's these kinds of organisations that will often be the first ones to assist. So without wanting to sort of diverge too much, I mean, one of the kind of double binds of these organisations, which, of course, often have very close patronage relationships to powerful figures, is that they both, in some respects, capture some of the agency of poor and marginalised groups 
who, from an elite perspective, could otherwise be considered as potential sources of disruption and disorder. So there is a kind of a, an element of the co-option of enemies and resentments and angers of marginalised social and economic classes into these and channeling often to very deeply reactionary politics through these organisations. But at a practicable and a pragmatic level, these organisations often provide kinds of frameworks for urban poor. And I, I, over the years, I've been very interested in, in why young people in urban poor neighbourhoods are drawn into groups like the Defenders of Islam Front and the Forum Batawi Grumpug. And again, it's often a mix of pragmatic instrumentalism combined with some ideological features. But primarily people see, and we argue this more broadly as a characteristic of poor people's politics, they have to approach these things as pragmatic in a pragmatic and instrumental manner. Observing this from the outside, and we saw this in the case of the mobilizations against AHOC by Islamist groups, of which the Islamic Defenders Front was a primary, you know, center stage in many respects. And many of the urban poor in Jakarta joining in in those mobilizations. From outsiders' point of view, you know, many saw this as rising intolerance as the, you know, increasing sectarian and identity-based politics. But certainly for many urban communities who felt that they'd be badly burned by Ahok, that there'd been initially a lot of goodwill when he was elected as alongside Jokowi as his deputy, but that he then engaged in some quite aggressive eviction regimes that impacted significantly on many urban poor neighbours throughout the city, that this alignment with this broader Islamist movement was entirely a st strategic and instrumental kind of politics. It wasn't an ideological politics. This was what was happening, and this was the vehicle, the political vehicle that could see uh, by then amongst many, not all, but many urban poor communities, a deeply unpopular governor who made them extremely uneasy about the future of their neighbourhoods, the political vehicle which they could align themselves to to bring him down. The idea that they could mobilise around the idea of evictions alone in the context of Jakarta, it politically it wouldn't gain traction against middle classes and others who may, many of whom were deeply sympathetic to Ahok's approach. So you've seen this as a key feature that can explain what from an external perspective might seem as often very contradictory ideological alignments. Well, that's because in many cases the poor are engaging in different political opportunities with an opportunistic lens, that this can provide particular things. It can provide a group may be able to provide short-term reprieve from an eviction, for example, or they may become a vehicle through which they can expand into cross-class alliances. And the 212 movement, for example, that, that was instrumental to AHOC, both losing the election but also being charged with blasphemy, saw many urban poor engaged in actions alongside middle-class Jakartans and, and from other parts of the country who may have been motivated by identity politics. But this was seen as a forum by which new kinds of alliances that would have instrumental value to them could be forged. And again, this is, I think, a, a very defining feature of urban rural politics because people are in these unequal relations of power. They approach these kinds of organisations and opportunities through a, a very different set of logics and strategies, but in many respects, is deeply strategic. And I know some urban poor neighbourhoods that did align with the FPE, for example, you know, they're quite nonplussed about the MPE. FPE is a religious organisation, but it is an organisation that was prepared at certain points to assist the community, and that's what people need. Nevertheless, you know, with the scale of the Islamist mobilisation against Ahok, 
you've mentioned the the opposition of urban poor groups to the aggressive campaign of evictions that AHOC had conducted. Uh, you know, in, in national politics, uh, we talk about enduring impacts of increasing polarization. Has it had a similarly transformative effect on the the sorts of partnerships, relationships that urban poor communities maintain, or, or the types of politics they conduct, or, or was this more a temporary alliance at the moment of an election and things have shifted back to a, a different set of partners afterwards? Polarisation, I think, around, say, the gubernatorial elections, certainly from what I observed from the outside for certain urban poor communities, you know, they really deeply invested in that kind of rhetoric and, and also in, in their support for uh, Anis Batswedan, but also for uh, the presidential candidate, Prabowo Subianto. For others, I think it remained largely a strategic and instrumental relationship. And of course, once the elections were over and the dust settled, in many respects, things returned to pretty much the same as they did before. And people have learnt this the hard way uh, over, over years, that you know, there's opportunities that arise in these electoral spaces and people will embrace those opportunities, but people have become very accustomed to deep disappointment afterwards. And I think that that's always kind of a moderating factor in the extent to which people will really throw themselves into, as some people did, many of the middle class in particular, this kind of polarisation, some people call it an ideological polarisation, but identity-based polarisation that we've seen in electoral politics. Again, I think with many of the urban poor, of course there are some who, who really became emotionally invested in this, but for many, it remained, I think, largely a strategic and instrumental kind of strategy. And, and once things are settled, you know, the governorship of uh, Anis Baswedan has delivered some benefits to particular communities who politically supported him, and there have been some tangible positive outcomes. In a broader sense, largely it's business as usual in Jakarta in that sense. And I think people maybe understand that's how politics works, and if they can try and etch out particularistic kinds of concessions or redistributions by aligning themselves to these broader political movements, and they'll do so. But I, I think there's sort of tempered expectations as to what might transpire afterwards. Is that really the prospects for urban poor activism for the foreseeable future in Jakarta? The you know no prospect really of transforming the kind of structural circumstances that see the urban poor disadvantaged, but simply a a case of carving out these particularist gains, you know, mostly at moments of elections. It's a, it's a fairly pessimistic picture, but uh, is, is that what the urban poor face? Well, I mean, in simple terms, I'd say probably yes, because if we, if we make comparisons to other parts of the world where there have been broad-based social movements coming from the poor and, and working class to lobby and gain, in some cases, gain political power and implement broader kinds of structural or macro changes that may actually challenge the kind of political and economic basis of how poverty is reproduced in a country like Indonesia. There isn't a political vehicle for that in this point of time. And even if we look at electoral politics, there's still been the trend, and this is a trend, I think, more broadly in Indonesia, uh, of pinning a lot of hopes on particular political figures a benign figure who will be who people invest a lot of hopes in to deliver significant changes. But of course, if you look at how electoral politics works, that's really the case. And really, there needs to be broader based social movements that can maintain pressure for these kinds of changes to come through. In each case, that there isn't anything like that at this point in time. And in fact, in many respects, political parties have very shallow roots when it comes to 
poorer working class neighborhoods uh, in the country. Often that's brokered through other organizations, such as a group like Forum Bataud and Pug, et cetera. So until the point in time where I think there's a where there's a broader political movement or even a political party that that advocates or argues that it's representing these kinds of interests, I think it's we're probably going to see a continuation of short-term instrumentalist strategic targeted politics by urban poor communities to try and gain basic concessions where they can just continue to exist within the city. Often it's quite a defensive politics. It's not asking for changes. It's just simply asking for people to be able to maintain what they already have by avoiding eviction, relocation, etc. Now, Ian, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, thanks so much for, for sharing your insights today. It, it, it's really been fascinating. No worries. It's my pleasure. That was Dr. Ian Wilson, Senior Lecturer in Security Studies at Murdoch University and author of The Politics of Protection Rackets in Post-New Order Indonesia, Coercive Capital, Authority and Street Politics. Today's episode is the final instalment of Talking Indonesia for 2019. On behalf of my co-hosts Gemma, Dirk and Charlotte, could I say a huge thanks to all of our guests and listeners for making another huge year for the podcast. We'll be back in 2020, of course, on the 16th of January. Until then, you can catch up with the entire archive of Talking Indonesia episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. But until 2020, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.